This message was presented at the GYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning, GYC. Did you have a good night of rest? Amen. Sufficient? Oh, there was no amen to that. <laughs> it was like, sufficient amen. amen. No, not really, okay. <laughs> well, um, I am excited for the message that we will share this morning. I am excited with apprehension. Um, and the reason I'm excited with apprehension is because this is the message I struggled with the most in preparing. Um, so the apprehension is on the struggle part, and the excitement is on the struggle part, so it's both. Why I struggled with it, um, the title of the message this morning is, Can God Trust You, Me, Death Before Dishonor? I'll read to you a quote from um, Messages to Young People, page 80, paragraph 2. Choose poverty, reproach, separation from friends, or any suffering rather than to defile the soul with sin. Death before dishonor or the transgression of God's law should be the motto of every Christian. And I wrestled with this because I thought there is no way I can present this if this isn't my motto, and I didn't know if, if that was a challenge I was willing to accept. So I'm excited with apprehension, and I, I invite you to join me in my apprehensive excitement. Um, and we'll begin with the word of prayer and delve into the word of God. Bow your heads with me. Loving Father, we know that you are softly and tenderly calling us to your side, but you're a holy God. And sin cannot coexist with you. And so you want to cleanse us of sin so that we can be in your presence. Lord, it is our prayer that we would make this commitment as we spend time in your word this morning. We ask for the presence of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction, to help us to make that decision. Clear our minds of the distractions that uh, maybe we may be experiencing. Help us to think because some of us are tired already. At the end of this, may we see Jesus more clearly. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. And we'll read from verse 1. It says, 1 Samuel chapter 13 from verse 1, it says, Saul reigned one year. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, I don't know if it's Michmash or Mich, Michmash, in that place, and in Mount Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. So Saul had been two years as king, and what he decided to do was to call 3,000 of the men before this, 
in the chapter that comes prior to this, um, the Holy Spirit had come upon Saul because there were people who were in trouble and they needed help. And Saul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to motivate the people to go out and fight. He rallied the armies together. They got 330,000 people, 300,000 from Israel, 30,000 from Judah. And they came together and they fought the battle of the Lord. And the Lord triumphed through them. They were so excited, super excited. They said, who, who didn't want Saul as a king? Clearly God is working through him. After they assembled at Gilgal and, and uh, Samuel, they had a re, uh, an instatement ceremony and you know, they dedicated Saul. And afterwards, Saul dispersed, Saul dispersed the people and he called just 3,000 to stay in his service. But they hadn't finished fighting the battles of the Lord. So it was a little preliminary for Saul to have dispersed the people, his army. And so now they find themselves, Saul has 2,000 men who, under his watch, and his son Jonathan has 1,000 men under his watch. Which, by the way, Jonathan is my favorite Bible character next to Jesus. After Jesus, not next to, after. Okay. Jesus is my number one. Okay. Uh, when I, I'm a super emotional person. Um, not because I'm a girl, because there are men who are emotional too. Um, it's just me as a person, I'm emotional, yeah? And... When, when, I, when I was reading through the Desire of Ages, when I got to the last chapters, my friends will attest to this, it took me like almost a year to finish the last few chapters of Desire of Ages because I was like, I don't want Jesus to die. Like, it was so crazy. I'm like, I know the story he does, but like just going through the experience, I'm like, but if I just keep, if I read slower, I'll just read one, one paragraph a day. Um, and, and, and I cried like a lot, you know, during that time in my devotions. One other person who made me cry as I was having devotions was Jonathan. I cried every single time I read about when he dies. I, I weep like, like, like I lost a relative. Like, seriously, it's, it's like so deep for me, you know, because I love Jonathan. Here's one of the reasons why I love Jonathan. In verse 3, it says, And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, the, Let the Hebrews hear. So the army, the army has been dispersed. Jonathan has just 1,000 men. And they go and, and they, they start an attack. And, and this is why I love Jonathan. Jonathan is a man of action. Right? He's not the kind of guy who sits back and he's like, man, I wish people would just fight. No. He gets up and he's like, let's go fight. And, and this is not just picking nitty-gritty battles, just fighting for the sake of fighting, right? Like, these are battles that need to be fought. Jonathan says, let's go and do it. Actually, when you read the next chapter, it's not with 1,000 men that he goes to fight. He just takes his armor-bearer. And the two of them together, they say, you know what? We need to go and let's pray and see if God would prosper us in this mission. So they pray and they say, you know, God will give this sign and if you answer this way, we'll do this. If you answer that way, we'll do this. And, and they go, the two of them, and put themselves out there and they say, Lord, use us Amen. in whatever way you wish. Amen. You know, it's so easy to complain. Super easy. 
we're all complainers in here because we're Israelites, right? Spiritual Israel, they have the same problem as the real Israelites had. Complainers. Murmuring, murmuring, murmuring. Ah, I wish GYC would. If only the church would. (laughs) We're good at it. Because it's so easy to find fault, isn't it? But it's hard to be the person who gets up and says, I'm not just going to fault find. God, can you use me to help solve this problem? And you know what Jonathan and his armor bearer, when they go in the next chapter... Jonathan says, let's go perchance because, because God can save by many or by few. Amen. And so sometimes we sit here and we're waiting for there to be 5,000 of us to go on outreach at U.S. How about when there's two of you at your church? How about when there are a few of us? Do we stop doing God's work because... There's just a, a handful of us. Oh, well, God can't do powerful things because it's just me. No, can't. Jonathan was a man of action. He was a minute man. And that's why I cried when he died. I'm like, Jonathan, he's so cool. But Jonathan gets up, and because of his action, because he gets up and does something, Saul is forced to get up and do something as well. You know, I have never met a pastor in my life. I've never met or seen or heard of a pastor who gets mad at the church member who is doing evangelism. I have never seen it in my whole entire life, which is so long. (laughs) But I've never seen it, never heard of it. I don't care if, you know, people say, oh, you know, some people are liberal, some people are conservative. Across the board. Because you know what happens? When you get up and you do evangelism at your home church, whose baptisms do those count as? Those are your pastor's baptisms. You know, and I'm not, it's not a numbers game. I'm saying there's no way your pastor will be mad at you because you're baptizing 15 people every year. Oh, this church member, so annoying. My church is growing. <laughs> no, it won't happen. But we sit in the pews at church and we complain, oh man, I wish the pastor would preach better sermons. How about we give good Bible studies? Amen. Amen. You know, I remember when I, I moved to um, a new part of town, I was living in the Boston area, and I moved to a new apartment with a new roommate, and as I was walking around the neighborhood, I noticed a church that was a few blocks from my apartment. So I thought, you know, I should visit the church. Wednesday night, I'm not doing anything, go to prayer meeting. So I went to the church for prayer meeting. As I was approaching the building, I noticed that the sign wasn't in English. It said, Eglise Avantis de Septième Jour, something like this. So it was French. And I thought, okay, well, you know, I took some French in college. I think I'll, I'll manage. As I approached the door, there was a group of ladies standing outside. It looked like, you know, the Dorcas Society. And do they still have Dorcas? Women's ministry. Women's ministry. And, and they were talking outside the building. And I thought, oh, man, like, how am I going to approach? I wonder if they'll say hi to me. And I walked and I approached. And, and the closer I got, I could see they looked at me. and I got so mad. I had to go around them to get into the building. And I thought... Are you serious right now? Don't I look like a visitor? You didn't greet me. Didn't busy gossiping. I was assuming they're probably gossiping. And I walked into the church, and there were a few people milling around in the lobby. And I thought maybe maybe I didn't look like a visitor before. Okay, so 
I'm going to put on my lost face. <laughs> like, I have no idea where I am going. <laughs> I put on my lost face, and I, I could see there's the sanctuary, but I'm just going to walk around here, you know, so I look lost and someone talks to me. And nobody talked to me. And I got even more furious. <laughs> this church is so unfriendly. And so I finally went into the sanctuary and they started、um, the prayer meeting, which, you know, sometimes, most times, prayer meetings are not really prayer meetings because we don't really pray until the end when we're praying to leave. But I got in there and, you know, the speaker started speaking and I thought, surely he will tell that I am a guest. And it turned out that it wasn't a French church, it was a Haitian church. So they were speaking Creole. And I sat there and I thought, okay, I understand one or two words, and I'm straining to try and comprehend what this person is saying. And I thought, surely I look confused in this moment. Maybe the speaker will recognize me as a guest. And nothing. So by the time we were having our prayer, they partnered us up. By this time, I. You know, in my heart, I was just like, Lord, send fire and brimstone, you know, <laughs> on this church. The most unfriendly experience I've ever had in an Adventist church. And this doesn't generally happen to me. So this was an anomaly. But it happened as a lesson to me because as I left and I walked home, I was talking to God about it. I was like, man, the state of our churches nowadays, I can't believe people don't even talk to you. You walk in the building, people ignoring, gossiping outside the door. You walk in the building, nobody translates for you anymore. I was so mad. <laughs> And in that moment, the Lord spoke to me. He said, Siku, why don't you talk to anyone? I said, Lord, I'm a visitor. Nobody talked to me. Poor me. <laughs> And he said, How are you a visitor? This is not an audible voice, by the way, right? Okay.、Yeah. How is it that you're a visitor, but you're a Seventh day Adventist? Yes. yes. And the Adventist church is your home. Amen. Amen. So rather than complaining that, oh, the Adventist church is so unfriendly, why don't you be part of the solution? Amen. Make that church your home. Go there and be friendly to people. So, from that day, I made a commitment to God. I said, you know what? Wherever I go for church, I'm not going to wait for someone to welcome me as a guest into the. No, I'm at home. <laughs> Usually, I'll go, I'll be like, oh, welcome. And they're like, oh, oh thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Because this is my church.、Amen. This is our church.、Amen. Let's take ownership of this church.、Amen. It's a trust that God has given to us. So, rather than sitting around complaining about all the things that are wrong, maybe we can be part of the solution.、Amen. Let's learn something from the life of Jonathan. And Jonathan, I can't believe he's actually Saul's son. Because Saul. Let's keep reading, okay? <laughs> Verse 4 And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines. And Jonathan didn't stand up and be like, wait, 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 it wasn't Saul, it was me. No. And that Israel also was had in abomination with the Philistines, and the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. You know, sometimes I say Philistines, sometimes I say Philistines. That's my confusion, you know, because I've been here too long, I forget which one I'm using. The Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 
Now listen to the numbers. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people, how many? The sand, which is on the sea shore, in multitude. Now when God promised Abraham lots and lots of descendants, what were they going to be like? Stars of heaven. These people were like the sand which is by the seashore, i.e. you can't count them. So when the children of Israel looked out at this force that was coming against them, they looked out at the enemy, they couldn't even number how many people were coming. So remember I said when they, when they fought earlier, there were 300,000 of them, of the children of Israel? So if this is sand of the sea, that means 300,000 is a drop in the bucket, right? Because you can count 300,000. There were gazillions of people, massive. And not surprisingly, the Israelites were intimidated. Verse, 20, verse uh, why am I there? No. Verse 5 of a 6. When the men of Israel saw that the people were in a strait, for the people were distressed, the people did what? They hid themselves. They were so intimidated by the enemy that they went into hiding. You know, um, Ellen White says that in Patriarchs and Prophets, in the chapter uh, about David as a fugitive, um, she says that every failure on the part of God's people is due to a lack of faith. Every failure on the part of the children of God is due to a lack of faith. Every failure. Because the children of Israel, I don't know what what happened in this moment. Hello, God had just won a victory through you guys. And then, and this happens all the time, right? God does something, God's people forget. We're so scared. So here's the enemy, and they got intimidated as they looked at this massive enemy that was coming at them, and, and they started hiding. And as the week progressed, because they were supposed to wait for seven days for Samuel to come and, and give the sacrifice and make the offering, and then Samuel had told Saul at that time that he would give him instructions on what to do. But as they waited those seven days, they got more and more discouraged because the, the, the longer that they waited, the fewer they became because more people kept leaving and, you know, more people leave. So you become a smaller number and then you're like, well, we're now smaller and then you leave. And, then, and it just got worse and worse and worse as the week progressed. And from what the Bible tells us, it mentions nothing about what Saul did about it. He was sitting there waiting for Samuel to come. Samuel, Samuel. Samuel, where is he? And and he was just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for Samuel to come, and Samuel just didn't seem to be coming. And so he gets to a place where, um, in verse 8, 7, let's start with 7, and some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal. And all the people followed him trembling, so whoever stayed behind was scared anyway. And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. They waited, and now Saul found himself 
in a, in, a, in a dilemma because here is the enemy. It's been seven days and, and we're supposed to fight, but Samuel hasn't come. We're supposed to make a sacrifice before we go and fight, but Samuel isn't here to make the sacrifice and, and the people are leaving and, and they're discouraged. But maybe if Samuel did, made the sacrifice, then they would feel encouraged and then we could fight. And, and so he's kind of standing at a crossroads, right? And all eyes are on him. Because he's the leader. All eyes are on Saul. What is Saul going to do? What do you do when you come to, to, to a crisis? You're, you're like between a rock and a hard place. What is he going to do? Turn with me to First Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I told you yesterday my favorite passage in the Bible is Genesis chapter 3. Um, we're going we're to read from 1 Timothy chapter 2. When we looked at Genesis 3, we learned that Eve uh, started talking with the serpent, which she shouldn't have been doing because she was walking around the tree, which she shouldn't have been doing without her husband, which she shouldn't have been doing. And, and they start having a conversation. And, and she gets to the point where she's holding the fruit. She's, she's got the fruit, looking at it, thinking, I actually think that this fruit is good for me. Remember that from yesterday? Yeah. Yes. Okay. She's thinking, I actually think that this fruit is good for me. We read that in Scripture. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 tells us that and Adam was not deceived but the woman being deceived was in the transgression this is what I'd like to take from this text the Bible says that Eve was deceived you know so people get mad at Eve and like, oh Eve brought sin into the world she was deceived give her a break you know <laughs> just kidding sin is sin okay I'm sorry. Um, but, but the Bible says that Adam, on the other hand, was not deceived. And what does it mean to be deceived? Eve actually got to the point where she thought, she actually thought that this thing that God had said was not good for her was actually good for her. Right? She looked at the fruit, she thought it was good for food, pleasant, desirable to make one wise. But the Bible says that Adam did not have that experience. He was not deceived. He didn't look at the fruit and think, oh, I think this is actually good. No. He knew full well that Eve has just sinned. He knew full well that what she did was going to cause death. But he looked at Eve. And yesterday I lent a statement, uh, there's no good story without a woman in it, or something like that, like in the testimony. He looked at his wife. He looked at Eve and, and he thought, Eve, my precious gift from God. And she was straight from the hand of God. Probably the most beautiful woman that has ever graced the planet. And he looked at her and he thought, what would my life be without her? And he remembered that time when, when, when he had a life without Eve. And he couldn't imagine life without her, perhaps. But now he's standing at a crossroads, right? He's in a dilemma. What are you going to do, Adam, as the leader of your home? Between a rock and a hard place, his love 
for his wife and his love for God. And, 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 and through the reasoning process that he went through, we know what happened in the end. The Bible tells us that Eve gave to her husband also with her and he did eat. So even though he wasn't deceived, he still ate. We have a problem. We have a problem that comes all the way down from Adam. That sometimes we know that it's wrong and we do it anyway. I look at that chocolate cake. So moist. And I know it's 11.30 so I should be sleeping anyway, but because I stayed up so late, I'm hungry again. <laughs> and the only thing to eat is this moist chocolate cake. I know it's bad for my teeth. I know it's, it will depress my immune system. I know it's unnecessary calories. But, but I'm between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> okay. we, we know that it's wrong. But we do it anyway. We have a problem. Big problem. I know that I shouldn't date him, <laughs> but you know, no Adventists in my, no, no, no single man in my church. What would I to do? <laughs> Besides, he's a nice guy. <laughs> we know it's wrong, but we do it anyway. And you know how we reason, like, well, God will understand. I mean, love is of God. <laughs> and we, read, and, 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 and we, we rationalize and, and go through this whole process. And Adam had that experience. He's standing there. There's Eve. He knows what she did is wrong. He knows that to eat that fruit is wrong. And yet here's Eve. And she ate the fruit. Turn with me to Matthew. Chapter 4. We'll look at my number one favorite character in the Bible and in my life. Matthew chapter 4. We looked at the first temptation yesterday, and uh, you know, thinking about the great controversy in, in the wilderness after Jesus was baptized and, and this confrontation between Jesus and, and Satan, you know, epic, especially thinking great controversy, controversy, confrontation, like crazy, right? So uh, we looked at yesterday the first temptation. Today we'll look at the second one as it's recorded in Matthew chapter 4. In the first one, uh, uh, Satan comes to him and says, look at your situation. How can you trust God's word given your circumstances? And he said, I trust God's word more than my necessary food. And, and, and then thereafter, Satan's like, oh, ha-ha, I get you. Hey. Change of tactics. Verse 5, the devil taketh him up into the holy city, setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, 
cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee, concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And the devil's thinking, I got you. You want to use scripture? I can use scripture too. Which, incidentally, you know, we should be careful just believing things because people say it's in the Bible. So just because I said, Ellen White said, that every failure on the part of God's people is due to a lack of faith. Are you guys going to check me on that? Because what if I'm lying to you? I'm not, but what if I am? (laughs) You know, when Paul, Paul, who is like super evangelist, super theologian, when Paul went to preach to the Bereans, they searched the scriptures to check Paul. If they search the scriptures to check Paul, what about you checking me? doesn't matter who says it. Is it scriptural? Is it in the Bible? I want to know for myself. And you know what? I love this about God. He's no respecter of persons. If we have a heart that wants to understand his word, he will send the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. He's not going to look at you and be like, oh, what? Oh, you're a biochemist? I'm sorry. I don't speak to biochemists. I only speak to religion majors. (laughs) He's not like that. If you have a heart that wants to understand in order to obey, he will show you what is truth. Amen. And I love that about God. Yes. Let's search the Bible for ourselves. Amen. Understand for ourselves what the Word of God says. Amen. You know, and it's, it's really discouraging because in this age we have all these resources. Bible in various languages. I brought my phone up here. I have the Bible in, in English. I'm learning Greek, so I have, a Greek, I have two Greek Bibles on my phone. I, I still don't understand what they say, but I have them. <laughs> the Spirit of Prophecy, and I'm so glad for that E.G. White Amen. Writings app. Amen. We have all of our, at our fingertips, we have all of these resources, yet we don't touch them. We're like, oh, there's a, there's, there's a theological issue in the church. Oh, what do the theologians say? Mm. No! We have the same Bible that they're studying. Amen. We have the same spirit of prophecy. Amen. We need to study God's word Amen. to make sure that what we're hearing from the pulpit is what God is saying in the Bible. Amen. Amen. The devil came to Jesus with scripture. And he was trying to use scripture to make Christ stumble. And I fear for a church that does not study the word of God. I fear for us if we don't study God's word. And the devil said, oh, didn't God say? And and what was enticing about it was what he said, it looked like faith. Throw yourself from the building. Didn't God say he's going to protect you? It looked like faith. It looked like trusting God. Trusting that, that, that while I'm on my way down, somehow, and I will not fall. It looked so like faith. It may have looked like faith to Adam. God is so good. 
He's so loving. There is no way he could really mean that people will die. That Eve, the one he gave to me, that I love, there's, how could he mean that? It may have looked like faith, like as if you were actually trusting God's character. But then Jesus responded. Verse 7. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Amen. And I love that Jesus went back to Scripture. Because sometimes, you know, people come with, they're like, oh, I'll give you Scripture so you, so you feel like, oh, I should change tactics. No. The Bible is sufficient. It's its own expositor. Yes, it is. So Jesus came back with scripture again and he said, no, it is written. So I know what you're telling me is not true because the Bible says, don't tempt God. Amen. Don't put yourself in a situation where God hasn't called you to go. I'm sorry to use, keep using the dating example, but, you know, it's my age, so... Um, You know, I'll date him and convert him. Ah, flirt to convert, dating evangelism. Yeah. <laughs> Putting us, giving ourselves evangelism God has never prescribed. <laughs> Jesus said, it may look like faith. It may look like trusting God. But truly trusting God leads to obedience. Amen. Amen. Trusting God leads to obeying God. Amen. That is what real trust looks like. Amen. And everything else is a counterfeit. Yes. Let's turn back to 1 Samuel. Chapter 13. We left Saul standing at the precipice of this colossal decision. All eyes are on him. All of Israel is looking at him. Probably the enemy is looking at him as the leader of the Israelites. What is he going to do? And the word of God says in verse 9, And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him, and you would think he was penitent. I'm so sorry. I, I, I felt like I just, it was an emergency. I just really had to do You would think, no. Samuel said, what, has, what hast thou done? What did you do? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me. And that thou camest not within the days appointed. It's your fault. And that the Philistines would get, get, gather themselves together at Michmash. That the situation just demanded some kind of action. Therefore I said, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal. And I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I need, I needed to, there needed to be some kind of an offering. He said, I forced myself. Therefore. I had to force myself to do this. And I offered a burnt offering. I had no choice. He doesn't apologize. 
He defends himself. I forced myself, therefore, to do this. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. In that moment as Saul was standing there with this choice to make, he didn't realize what was on the line. <coughs> he didn't realize that in this one decision he was going to determine the, 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 the fate of his reign and whether his descendants were going to sit on the throne or not. He didn't realize what was at stake in that moment. And I don't know if Adam realized what was at stake in that moment for him. I don't know if he realized that, that how many years down we would be sitting here, you know, suffering, that, that all of this sin and, and the pain would, would result from that one decision. I don't know if he realized what, what the weight of that decision was. I'm glad Christ did. I'm going to read a quote, quote to you from patriarchs and prophets. This is page 621, paragraph 5. She says, We do not know what great interests may be at stake in the proving of God. There is no safety except in strict obedience to the word of God. All his promises are made upon condition of faith and obedience, and the failure to comply with his commands cuts off the fulfillment to us of the rich provisions of the scriptures. She's saying that there are things that God wants to do for us that he cannot do for us because we are disobedient. That we close the door to certain blessings, we close the door to certain experiences because we're choosing to walk in the opposite direction and God says, I can't bless you there. Don't go there. We should not follow impulse nor rely on the judgment of men. We should look to the revealed will of God and walk according to his definite commandment, no matter what circumstances may surround us. God will take care of the results, and that's where the trust is. And I struggled so much with this message until I read that statement. Matter of fact, I was in a conversation with a friend. I was, I was, she was asking how the preparations were going for the messages, and I, I told her, I said, you know, I'm really having a hard time with this message. And, and she said, maybe, maybe the focus is a little bit off. And so I started praying about it more, and then the realization hit me. And after that, I, I started seeing it everywhere, like Jeffrey was saying. That what God needs from us, the part that we play in this whole big drama, is to trust Him. Amen. Amen. Did you get that? Okay. So God is huge, and He's powerful, so powerful that He is omnipotent, super powerful, right? Amen. And, and he, we can trust him because not only is he powerful, but he has a character of love. He wants to bless us. Amen. But when I, when I started thinking about this idea of can God trust me, I thought there's no way God can trust me. A, look at my character. I'm a mess. B, I am so weak. How could God trust me? 
How could, he, how could he trust me to obey him? I'm so incapable. And then I realized that no, what God wants to trust us to do, he wants to trust us to trust him. Amen. Amen. To say, I trust you so much that I obey you because I trust that you will take care of the consequences. God will take care of the results. By faithfulness to his word, we may in time of trial prove before men and angels that the Lord can trust us in difficult places to carry out his will, honor his name, and bless his people. Men and angels are looking on, and in that moment, that was, that was in a chapter that Ellen White writes about this encounter we were talking about with Saul. She says that in that moment, as Saul was standing there with this decision to make, he didn't realize that men and angels were watching him. He didn't realize what was at stake. And in every decision that we are called to make, we have an opportunity to prove before men and angels that God can trust us. But not trust us because we're super powerful and we're like so amazing. But that God can trust us to trust Him. Because trust results in obedience. And so one of my favorite hymns is Trust and Obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Because when you just obey, it gets hard. But when you trust, and because you trust, you obey, you're happy in Jesus. Yesterday we talked a lot about the trusting God part. So I think we have an idea, at least a general picture of what we're talking about when we say trust God. And today I'm saying, trust God so much that you obey Him. And through that act of obedience, men and angels look on. And it brings honor and glory to His name. It brings blessing to His people. My question this morning Will you trust and obey? Will you obey because you trust? He's already proved that he's worthy of your trust. Will you join me this morning in a commitment as we bow our heads for prayer to obey him? Let's pray. Our loving Father, we know that time is short and your coming is soon. And that this great cosmic conflict called the Great Controversy is going to be wrapping up soon. And what's at stake is your character. And can we be an argument in favor of your character? And this morning you're asking if you can trust us to trust you. 
Lord, when we come to those crossroads, when we come to those decisions, whatever they are in our academics, in our relationships, in, in our workplaces, whatever decisions that we come to, we come to a crossroads and it feels like we're between a rock and a hard place, whether it's between our desires and your will, or it's between what society wants and your will. Whatever those decisions are, Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember that you are worthy of our trust and that we would exercise the kind of trust that leads to obedience. Not the presumptuous kind that looks good on the outside, but is devoid of the obedience that comes from a true trust in you. Lord, we pray that you'd make this a reality in our lives because we cannot do it of ourselves, and that's why we thank you for Jesus who accomplished this in our behalf. We ask that you would appropriate his life to ours and you'd make us live holy, just as he did. This is our request because this is our desire. We pray in your name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.